Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. When it comes to COVID-19 and all of the news that's associated with it, most recently we've also been hearing a lot about uh, bacterial infections, which are not unusual where viral infections occur. And uh, not so long ago, England's chief medical officer warned of a post-antibiotic apocalypse as bacterial superbugs resistant to the most powerful antibiotics are growing in number. And uh, I've talked to Jason Tetro about that, and Jason joins us now, microbiologist, the germ guy, author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files, and host of the super awesome Science Show podcast. How are you, Jason? I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. Uh, Global News is reporting today that more Canadian women than men have contracted COVID-19 and are dying of the virus, and that's different to what's been observed in, in, in other countries. Is that just happenstance? It, at this point, we haven't really figured out exactly what is the problem uh, when it comes to the, uh, the difference between men and women. Um, originally, we had just simply thought that it was due to the fact that men made poorer life decisions than women. Um, they, you know, there were more smokers, <clears throat> there were more people who were obese, uh, and, and had other underlying health conditions. But when you see something along these lines, then you start to think about um, what could possibly be another factor. Now, we do know that when it comes to this particular virus, uh, where, how stressed you happen to be may actually have an impact on how severe the disease gets. So there may be other factors that we just simply haven't been able to um, you know, get out of the data that we have at the moment, but it wouldn't surprise me because when you think about it, even with healthcare workers who are under severe stress, they seem to also be far more vulnerable to the severe effects of this virus. Now, again, this is one of those possibilities. It's a theory. We haven't proven it yet, but it's definitely one that will be under consideration over the next little while. Mm, complicated little beast, isn't it? Mm, yeah. It's one of those viruses where um, if it was just a simple common cold that went after you know one of the usual types of receptors in order to get into your cells, it wouldn't be a problem. This one happens to go after one of the receptors that is responsible for your entire body's sort of stasis. And as a result of that, any type of loss of that particular molecule can lead to a host of different types of secondary or sequelae um, that could lead to problems and, and possibly even and, you know, land you in the hospital and, and fighting for your life. Yeah. We have volunteers in Canada and elsewhere prepared to be injected with a test vaccine mm -hmm. and then live COVID-19 in order to help determine whether the proposed vaccines ward off the virus. What do you think of this process? This is something that we hear about whenever we have sort of the new pandemic of the day. Remember, we've had, uh, well, this is my seventh since uh, the, the turn of the millennium. Um, and, and what happens is that people feel obligated to do something to help. And in many cases, it's very difficult to be able to help unless you are, you know, a skilled professional or you're one of these essential workers. So people who are very healthy may feel obligated to put themselves forward in order to have themselves be tested to prove that a vaccine works. Now, that, that's really nice, and I, and I agree with that. But the problem is that when you're looking at a vaccine, one of the things that you need to think about are the people who are most susceptible to the virus. And as a result of that, they may not be the first ones that we would choose for these types of studies. So while it is 
um, it's nice to see people wanting to make a difference. It may not end up actually doing anything down the road because clinical trials have to follow a certain protocol. And if we don't, we're never going to know for sure. Yeah. Uh, Jason, where do, uh, where do the superbugs, you and I have talked about this issue several times, mm-hmm. where, where do the superbugs, the bacteria resistant to most current antibiotics, and are still part of the health landscape, uh, where do they fit in this overall uh, COVID-19 story? Well, I mean, if you think about it, when you get the flu, right, um, normally it's not that big of a deal. You're going to recover. However, if you have a weakened immune system, then what may happen is bacteria will get into your lungs. And then you go from having influenza to having a bacterial pneumonia. And then when that happens, the bacteria may find their way into your bloodstream and then cause what is known as sepsis, which we all know is very, very bad. It's life-threatening. So now all we've done is we've just basically changed the name of the virus that came first. Instead of flu, we're talking about COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, if you want to call it officially. And that is causing the problem that could then lead to that secondary pneumonia from bacteria and then the tertiary sepsis. So this is not a new thing. It's just that we've changed the name of the virus that comes in first. Okay. There are the seasonal uh, problems that we face uh, each year in the springtime. And I'm going to do about a 45-degree direction change here. But uh, there are issues that people have to deal with uh, once we start getting into the warmer weather, whenever we're outside, like ticks. (laughs) Well, yes. Uh, It's rather uh, interesting when you bring that up. I mean, it's still there, isn't it? I mean, it's still going on. Well, I think that's one of the big issues that sort of we're finding right now is that we seem to have lost all sorts of other problems to our health uh, in place of COVID-19. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they've gone away. And one of the big things, I mean, I remember last year, we were talking about ticks like mad around May of last year. That and, of course, uh, you know, the fact that we couldn't eat romaine lettuce. But the, the reality is that these types of things are not going away. So when you're thinking about going outside, when you finally get that green light to go outside, and you happen to be in an area that may be, you know, a bit humid, a bit grassy, a bit woody, or even your own backyard if you happen to be in southern Ontario, then there's a risk that these ticks may be around. And while many tick species don't carry a disease, we all know that the black-legged tick, or the deer tick in some cases, as people call them, happen to carry a bacterium known as Borrelia burgdorferi, and that potentially could lead to Lyme disease. Well, my friend, thank you for joining us. I wanted to get as much into this interview as I could in the minutes we had, and you did a terrific job. COVID-19 still number one on the list that we have to be careful of and very wary of, but there are other issues that are still out there and still uh, threaten us on a daily basis. We have to maintain our overall health. Always great talking to you, Jason. Take good care. It was a pleasure. Take care. Jason Tetro, the uh, the germ guy, Germ Files, uh, one of his books, and um, the super awesome science show podcast. Just weeks ago, the International Monetary Fund Managing Director warned the current economy is, quote, way worse than the global financial crisis, end quote. And, uh, you know, I've been looking and following this as best I can. I'm not an economist, but like so many other people, I'm really, really interested in what's going on. And I keep seeing the words Great Depression, Great Depression, Great Depression in various stories. We saw it in the Washington Post and just talked to an economics correspondent from the Post about that a couple of minutes ago. Um, 
what's the real story and what was life like in the Great Depression? I know from my next guest that it was much worse in Canada than it was in the United States. Joe Martin was the director of Canadian Business History at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, founding president of the Canadian Business History Association, former senior executive at Deloitte, and author of From Wall Street to Bay Street. That's Mr. Martin's new book, From Wall Street to Bay Street. Bay Street. Joe, thank you very much for, for coming on the program. And uh, I'm just fascinated with this, these references to the, to the Great Depression. Um, what, was the, what caused the Great Depression? What, what started it? Well, Canada is a very, trade, uh, very much reliant on trade. That's point one. Point two, as with COVID today, you know, we're very close to the United States, and things that happen there spill over into our country. So the Great Depression worldwide, it's interesting if you get into it, because the Western Hemisphere was worse than the Eastern Hemisphere. The Northern Hemisphere was worse than the Southern Hemisphere. And if you work your way north, Mexico was better than the U.S. U.S. was better than Canada. So when the U.S. has an economic problem, which it did, that has negative impact for Canada and because the economies are so tightly intertwined. But secondly was the U.S. trade policies, most notably the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which just was devastating for many of, many of Canada's basic industries. So what does that tariff do? Well, it, it jacked up the uh, tariff on all kinds of base products. And uh, you will, if you examine trade patterns at that time, all of a sudden Britain once again becomes our major trading partner, not because uh, we're doing a lot more, but we're just doing so little with the United States. One example that I found fascinating, because I didn't know about it before I got into this, was prior to that tariff, we had a big meat industry in Alberta, and that industry did no, no selling in Canada. They sold, they designed their product for sale in the United States. Hmm. Once the tariff was in, no more sales. Bang. Of course. Stopped. Yeah. And so you can get base product after base product where this was happening, hmm. and uh, it was very devastating, and as some very good books uh, on the United States have said the, their tariff policy caused other countries to retaliate it, and so the world got into this trade war not that dissimilar to what is possible today. So there, so the, this trade war, this this tariff, uh, would have been fundamental to the Great Depression uh, getting underway, getting started. Right. And, and, and you say some of the situations that we see today in 2020, not so dissimilar to what was seen in 1928, 1929? Yes, I mean, I think that once Roosevelt became president, and with mm -hmm. the assistance of the Secretary of State, you saw... We were in a, a new uh, trade agreement was negotiated with Canada and many other countries, liberalizing trade, and that went on through the creation, American-led creation of the General Agreement on Trade and Tariff, the Kennedy Round. And uh, I can think as recently as George uh, W. Bush saying, never forget Smoot-Hawley. 
what it did. I remember that. Yeah, I remember him saying that. Reason, yeah. The current president and his advisors don't seem to think Smoot-Hawley had a lesson for us. And so you're back into what I call that we, and we've known it from our very existence. Remember the year before Canada came into existence, the United States abrogated the trade agreement back in 1866. So sometimes the Americans are our friends, and sometimes they're not. And uh, when the president is talking his protectionist line, there are many Americans who support him on this, and they don't give a damn for Canada. And so we as a small country have a real problem because we've got problems with the United States, we've got problems with China, and I... And, you know, all of a sudden, China emerges a world power. In the old days, it was the U.K. and U.S. Right. And normally, while the Brits were paternalistic, we could deal with them. Joe, what was life like? Now, when you and I talked before we did the interview, we're doing the interview live now, but you and I had a conversation the other day. What was life like for Canadians, For if there's such a thing as an average Canadian, during the Great Depression, because you told me that it was much worse in Canada, and harder on Canadians than it was on Americans. So what was life like for, for, for Canadians? Well, since I've talked to you, I got down Pierre Burton's great book, The Great Depression, and that reinforced uh, what I had uh, known, and that was just how hard it was, uh, you know, and, and, and little things. Let me give you an example in our own family. Uh, my father-in-law, who I never met because he died uh, quite young, was a bank teller with the Royal Bank of Canada. And you could not get married if you were working for the bank unless your salary was above a certain level. And you couldn't get married? Beg your pardon? You couldn't get married unless your salary was at a certain level. Yeah. And his wow. wasn't. His was below. So finally, apparently, my mother-in-law in 1932 said to him, we're getting married. And he said, well, what do I do? You better figure that out. And he became a door-to-door life insurance salesman. But there was real devastation. But at the, low, at the level of the average citizen, what I have found in talking to older people, it's hard to get a real sense because... They prefer to remember the good. They say, oh, wasn't that bad? At least we were all in the same boat. So it was a much more egalitarian society. To occasionally get to go to a movie would be a big deal, a really big deal. And it was very, and diets were very, were cut back. People had to eat, you know, some had to eat very poorly. And that also partially depended where you live. Yeah. Uh, because the uh, impact of the depression was not universal across Canada, but it, it, you have to say that life was hard, but people seemed to accept it. Life was very hard. Uh, I, I read a couple of things uh, after you and I talked, and, and just reading how people had to live and what they went without. Right, and what they went without. That's a very it, good it, phrase. Yeah, it, it taught me, it, taught, it gave me an understanding of why when I was a kid growing up and I was, some of my friends' parents 
um, grandparents had lived through the Great Depression, why they saved everything. I, I learned, I understood finally why they kept everything because they couldn't afford to buy something new, so everything was repurposed, and it was a completely different way of living for um, a, a decade or so. Uh, Joe, what's Let me say one other point. Yeah. But they were, and there was always the people who had been successful and all of a sudden found themselves going down the shame of going on relief. Mm-hmm. And that some people chose suicide over going on relief. Yeah. Yeah. And even though I was born in 37, so I was at the tail end, when I was 16 years of age and made the decision to drink coffee, I said, I will drink my coffee black without sugar, without milk or cream, because we might have another one. Yeah. Joe, I, I have about 30 seconds for an answer from you on this, and then I want to talk to you about that McDonnell-Laurie Institute letter that you signed, mm-hmm. the open letter to Trudeau. Yep. Was there any good news that came out of the Depression? Was there, uh, really, was, well, was there any, it anything positive? showed that Canadians as a people uh, could survive almost anything. Mm-hmm. I guess that was the good news. Okay. Are you worried? Are you concerned in May of 2020 when you see what's going on and you've studied all this? You're the, you know, you're, you're the economics expert and, and economics history expert. Are you worried about where we might land, where we might wind up? Yeah, I guess that's part of the reason I signed the letter to the prime minister. Right. Because, well, let me put you on. Uh, you know, they, we say we begin the letter. It's a false assumption that you can, you know, you either, uh, on the one hand, save everybody, uh, but suffer the terrible economic consequences. Well, I don't know if, you know, the the, the numbers are starting to come out. The number of unemployed, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, this could set our Canadian economy well back. And so I think we need a more balanced approach, and I hope the letter was articulate enough to say that when we say more, we don't mean, you know, the prime minister seems to think his idea of public policy is to take the taxpayer's money and give it away because he doesn't seem to have any sense of fiscal responsibility. But, you know, that's the only policy we've heard out of Ottawa. Where are the other policies that we'll be looking at creating a stronger economy. If you go to my uh, Twitter account, at the Roy Green Show, at the Roy Green Show, you will see a link to the Beyond Lockdown open letter that was sent to the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, by the McDonald Laurier Institute and signed by a significant number of distinguished Canadians. And uh, one of these Canadians is Joe Martin, who is my guest and uh, Mr. Martin's uh, most recent book, uh, by the way, is From Wall Street to Bay Street. Uh, Joe, I, I'm just, re- I just want to read a couple, couple of lines from this letter and then ask you to provide us again an overview. We can and must do better. It's the responsibility of our leaders to defend both the health and prosperity of Canadians. These goals are not in conflict, but reinforce one another. The path forward does not lie in politicians deferring to experts, as two experts from the London School of Economics observed recently. It is dangerous when politicians ignore expert advice, but it's just as dangerous when politicians outsource their judgment to experts, especially if the margin of error is huge 
and the advice is contested. Ultimately, it's the job of politicians to make the tough decisions about trade-offs, end quote. That from the letter. What is this letter telling the Prime Minister of Canada? You signed it. What are you telling him? Well, it's, it seems to me that the, 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 and why I signed the letter is that, that they're saying, here's your choice. Uh, we're not going to let anybody get sick, uh, but we're going to let the economy go to hell. And if you're in favor of the economy, you're a heartless SOB. Well, that's just simply not true, because if you, you know, I I went in for to a drive for, to a little town, and things are starting to open up, but a lot aren't. And, and the people in those in retail and restaurants are so fundamental in our country that all of these people are, are losing, losing their life savings. Or take a big corporation like Air Canada, which over the years has had its ups and downs, finally before COVID, was really doing well financially for a change. And bang, look where it is now. And what I think we need to hear from the government is what is what are your plans to get the economy moving again? And again, the star front page headline was about a cancer person. So it's, it's tough to have cancer at any time. And I can say the yes from experience. But this is the worst time. And, and people... Some people are dying not from COVID, but because they aren't in hospitals. Yeah. We talked about that yesterday with the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Did you? Yeah, and we talked about the modeling that was done, the computer modeling, which suggested the carnage in the hospitals was going to be huge. And so, uh, you know, elective surgeries, which is not, as we pointed out, not just about chin tucks and uh, fixing your nose right. uh, to, to your own personal likes or dislikes, uh, it, it, it includes heart surgeries, for example. They may not be critical to you today, but it could very well be a life changer or a life ender three weeks from now. So we talked about that. And, and if you're going to follow the modeling, then the modeling better be correct. Right. Uh, otherwise, you're going to create more problems than you, than you solve. Well, how would you describe what Justin Trudeau is doing? He's rolled out all of these programs in incrementally, bit by bit. I've said on the air, it looks like a miniseries to me, but how would you describe the, what, what Trudeau is doing? Well, it seems to me it's consistent with his philosophy and that of many of his cabinet ministers in that they don't believe in uh, wealth creation, they believe in equality, absolute equality. And of course, he has got good support for that in the NDP and the bloc. And, and you know, when I think of absolute equality, I, uh, because I'm, I guess I'm an historian, I think back to when Fidel Castro took over Cuba. In that year, the GDP per capita of Cuba, of Cuba and South Korea were identical. Think about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would be, South Korea now, what would be 10, 20 times higher in terms of GDP sure. per capita? I'm sure, yeah. But when you're only concerned with redistribution, uh, and creative people uh, in this world can move quickly. What's the thing, uh, Joe, we have about 30 seconds. What's the thing that Mr. Trudeau has to do? Well, I think he has to... Uh, uh, one, I wouldn't rely so much on the data he's getting from the Ministry of Health, and I think they should check on their data. But secondly, they need to provide 
opportunities. Let's well, the ones I would think of is we need pipelines built. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need all kinds of economic I- infrastructure, okay. and uh, we need our uh, entrepreneurs unleashed. Yes, sir. Joe, thank you so much, Joe Martin. I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, it's an honor. To, it's an honor to speak with you. Uh, Director of Canadian Business History at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, founding president of the Canadian Business History Association, former senior executive at, Delo- at Deloitte, and the most recent book is From Wall Street to Bay Street. Thank you, Joe. All the best to you, sir. Okay, you take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Joe Martin, we'll come right back on the Chorus Radio Network. We're joined now with, uh, by my good friend John Zogby, the founder of the uh, Zogby Poll, the internationally famous Zogby Poll, and uh, johnzogbystrategies.com. John is not only a pollster, he writes op-eds for major publications like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, and he's the author of We Are Many, We Are One. John, thank you for the time, and we're now looking, what's, we're watching very carefully what's going on in the United States, because whatever happens in your country has an effect on us. And we're now just under six months away from the election in November. The 2016 U.S. election had many moving parts, but nothing like COVID-19 and the issue of reopening the economy of the United States, which we just heard Mr. Trump speak about. What are your expectations for the next five and a half months? What's it going to be like heading toward November and the vote for the presidency in the United States? What's that whole campaign going to be like? Well, for starters, it's it's too close to call, Roy. You know, uh, Joe Biden leads by four to five points. He had been leading by seven to nine points, but um, uh, uh, he's relatively absent. I I don't think it's his fault. I I think it's, um, you know, the factor of the coronavirus and the fact that there aren't live events. And uh, in terms of press coverage, um, you know, the... The press and their efforts uh, are uh, severely limited because they're forced to watching um, videos. But where do we stand? Uncharted territory, really. Um, by all accounts, historically, a president with numbers uh, like Donald Trump has loses uh, a bid for re-election. Um, but uh, these are uh, these are very strange times. Um, and the burden right now is on Joe Biden to make the case. I think he's capable of doing it, but we're sort of in a, in a lull period right now, and probably correctly so. I don't think that the former vice president should be out there um, condemning and criticizing the president at every turn. That could be bad form and could backfire. Mm-hmm. You uh, you're doing your own polling, and uh, you did you polled the younger demographic yeah. that's going to be voting in 2020. Some of them voting for the first time, and you're doing it for Forbes.com. What's the uh, what's the young American telling you matters as far as issues are concerned? Well, for sure, it's the economy. Um, uh, it had been the environment, along with the economy and healthcare, uh, but by far and away, uh, you know the. The last hire, the first fired, uh, 18 to 29-year-olds are are really in trouble. And again, with very few prospects, nobody really knows when and if this economy is going to turn around and if it turns around, um, who is actually going to be going back to the jobs that they had held previously. It's kind of a, a very 
not kind of, it is definitely a, a very turbulent period. What are they saying? Not surprisingly, they back the Democrat. 18 to 29-year-olds have solidly um, been with the Democrats since uh, 2004 and growing under Barack Obama. But Joe Biden is not yet where he needs to be among younger voters. Um, he leads by 20 percentage points. Barack Obama had won by 28 and 32 uh, percentage points. Um, and right now, Biden's numbers are a tad closer to what Hillary Clinton performed uh, in 2016, uh, as opposed to what uh, Obama had performed. And so Biden certainly has to focus on this group. John, what's your assessment of what's going to happen as far as uh, the uh, U.S. government getting engaged in in the, uh, re- I, I don't know if we can call it a recovery, because we don't know how far down we're, we are and how much further things are going to slide as far as the economies are concerned, yours and ours. But the, the House passed a $3 trillion aid package, knowing it wouldn't get anywhere because it had to go through the Senate. And even so, 14 Democrats voted against their own uh, party, and it was only, I think it was a 9 Nine vote victory for yeah. for the yeah. for the Democrats in the House. Uh, what's what's going to happen with, uh, with with money? Eventually, you know, there's just not going to be any money around. Uh, John, what, what, what's the what's, what's the U.S. government going to do? Well, it's going to have to be printing money. No one is going to run, at least at the top, as a fiscal conservative this year. No one mm-hmm. is going to be a deficit hawk so to speak. Uh, You already have Donald Trump, who's uh, spending more than FDR, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, during the the New Deal, percentage-wise and and debt-wise. And there will be more stimulus money. Um, There has to be. When you talked about the staggering loss of jobs, the staggering loss of businesses, we're talking about businesses that may never uh, come back. Uh, certainly in their in their current form we are too money has got to be spent yeah we're talking about that in in this country and i've been doing a weekly uh, segment with the president and ceo of the canadian federation of independent business and uh they represent the small business community in canada and uh, more than 60 percent of the small business owners had concerns about whether they were going to survive and 3% said, and that represented 30,000 businesses, 3% said if the emergency measures continue until the end of May, we're now looking at less than two weeks, they would not, definitely would not reopen. So your numbers must be tenfold that, because usually whatever happens here, because of the population difference, happens tenfolds larger in the United States. Very concerning. Travel, leisure, restaurants, services of, of all sorts. Yeah. Um, uh, healthcare, ironically speaking, uh, nurses are being laid off. Private yeah. hospitals are operating at enormous deficits at the moment of, of greatest need. This, th- th- this is what bailouts are, are all about, and that's mm-hmm. why the government's just going to be printing money, and we'll have to worry about uh, renegotiating that debt or, or growing the economy somewhat or some combination thereof. You, you opened up with the president's words about a, a, a great third quarter, a greater fourth quarter, strength next year. I, I don't know of an economist alive that is talking like that. Seriously. Liberal, conservative, libertarian, whatever. No, no one is saying that. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, I would think, and I, this is what I'm getting feedback when I'm from my listeners, is while politics remains important, and we have a minority government in, situation in Canada, and that's going to become more of an issue in the probably in the months to come. But at present, politics takes a very serious backseat to the issue of health, to the issue of this virus, to the issue of getting the economy under control. And that's somewhere where politics comes back into the picture because ultimately we're going to hold the uh, the politicians accountable for the decisions they made. But politics, uh, I, I would imagine, also in the United States, for voters, is not number one. Or is it? Well, it isn't. There's a huge level of distrust. And then the uh, distrust is compounded by hyperpartisanship, which yeah. is then further com- compounded by the fact that this is not a partisan statement on, on my part. I mean, um, there is no Winston Churchill on the conservative side. There is no Franklin Roosevelt on the, on the, um, on the liberal side. I mean, look at where we're at. We have some states that can't, many states, that can't wait to reopen despite what the health officials are saying. You have shut down orders by governors and sheriffs all over Michigan and all over several states that have technically reopened who are saying, uh, or, or have not reopened, saying we're not going to enforce shutdowns anyway. And of course, the law is no good unless there's, you know, some sort of local and regional enforcement. So what we have is, is political and governance chaos at a time when we really need both of them um, and we need some national unity. We're not yeah. getting it. Yeah, John, thank you for the time. There's no way we need chaos in the equation these days, but it's, uh, yeah. it's there. Always good talking to you, my friend. Take care. You too. Take care, Roy. Uh, John Zogby, the founder of the, uh, the Zogby Poll, International Poll, and uh, also founder of uh, John Zogby Strategies, and his uh, most recent book is We Are Many, we are one. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.